been thinking together these four weeks in a sermon series, what does a follower of Jesus look like? We've thought together about the uh, reality that a follower of Jesus looks like a loving loser, uh, persistent no matter what, childlike, not childish. And this morning we think together about what it means to be a follower of Jesus as one who is broken. In a moment, I'm going to read uh, aloud to you our text, which is Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. I'll invite you to have your Bibles ready. I will, first of all, invite you to bow with me for a time of meditation and silence, to be in God's presence, to be silent in the presence of the God who made us and who loves us and who rescues us. You are light, you are love, you are fullness. We bless you, God. And we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who was broken on our behalf, that you might teach us more about following you, about being faithful disciples. Forgive our sins, cleanse us from all that stains and distracts us and disappoints you. Refresh us, fill us with your spirit, and may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 30, uh, verse 24. If you're able, would you stand please as uh, I read aloud God's word? A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must be like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, when once you have been, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin this morning with a picture of a sieve. Uh, Most of you know what a sieve is. Uh, It's a very primitive sort of instrument for agriculture as well as for cooking. We call it different things in the kitchen perhaps, but a sieve is a pan or a bowl with holes in the bottom so that you can shake it vigorously and you can separate the grain from the chaff, the grain from the waste, so that the holes underneath make a way of separation. And it's not a gentle shaking. 
It's sort of a, a, a very powerful, urgent kind of shaking that makes that cleaning of the grain possible. And the sieve is the working image that Jesus used when he was talking to Peter and, by extension, to the other disciples and to us about what it means to be broken. Because Jesus understood that sometimes things don't change in our lives until there's a violent shaking, until there's a, there's a sense of separation, separating the good from the bad, the truth from the lie, uh, the, the meaningful and needed from the unmeaningful and the unneeded. And it's a powerful image that Jesus gives us of sifting, uh, using a sieve to separate. Uh, there's a lot of brokenness in our lives that, that created a, an awareness of how much we need God. There, there are, there's a brokenness that happens in relationships. That's why I began this passage by reading about the quarreling that the disciples are doing. And, and you realize that the disciples are quarreling about who's the greatest among them, that they're doing that right after Jesus has bared his soul and told them that he's going to sacrifice his life on the cross for them. Right after that, they decide to get into a tiff about who's the greatest among them. And it's at times like that that we get an insight into our own souls, to the blackness of our own lives, to the stuff that's in there that we're not proud of. And that breaks us when we realize how much pride gets in the way of relationships with others. And uh, it's not just that, of course. It's it's the way we fail the Lord. Jesus goes ahead and talks to Simon, and he says, Simon, Simon, there's a, there's a request on Satan's part to sift all of you, all of the disciples. But when you've turned, Peter, I want you to be strong, and I want you to help them. And then Peter brags about how, well, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere, even to death. And uh, Jesus said, I hate to tell you this, but before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. So there's a brokenness that came to Peter's life not only because of the squabbling in the horizontal relationships, but, but there was a brokenness that would come to his life because of his failure in his relationship with God in the ways that he disappointed himself, disappointed others, and disappointed his Lord and Master. And when those things happen, they're very real and very powerful. And there's a brokenness that creates in us a readiness to follow Jesus and to not be so proud and not be so vain and not be so in charge of things sometimes. Now, I want to tell you something fascinating about the concept of the sieve, this sifting instrument. The Romans had a sifting instrument, a sieve as we would call it in English. It was sled-like, it was made out of wood, it was long so that uh, a person could be on each side of it and they would sift, violently shake, large piles of grain. And do you know what the Latin word for this sieve was, the word that the Romans used when they talked about that instrument, the Latin word for that sieve, listen to it, tribulum, tribulum, from which we get our word tribulation. Isn't it fascinating that our word for tribulation is a word that connects us to that shaking and that sifting and that painful separating of us from the trash of our lives. It's only in brokenness. It's only in tribulation that sometimes we do the growing. Now, you know what happens to most of us when we're broken? Uh, when we're broken, um, 
And when there's a catastrophe in our lives, most of us awfulize the situation. Uh, I just made that word up, awfulize. I see you're with me this morning. Uh, But we awfulize the situation. We start thinking about what's the most awful consequence, what's the most horrible, awful thing that could happen down the road from this, and we just awfulize it, and we just totally lose control. What happens is we make that, that brokenness, that pain in our lives, larger than God, which, by the way, is idolatry. We make that, that tragedy in our lives larger than God. We make the power of that awful thing in our life more powerful than the power of Jesus' resurrection. We awfulize that situation, and God and Jesus want us to take that brokenness that we're experiencing and put it back in context. God wants us to take that, that pain and that struggle, that tribulation, and God wants us to see how that shaking, though painful, may bring about good, and to put that, that tribulation in a context. Eric Little was the famous Olympic runner in the 1924 Olympics. The movie Chariots of Fire was made about him. He was a Scottish preacher, a fantastic Christian who refused to run on Sunday. Uh, And the entire movie was about that amazing experience. Eric Little uh, wrote a book on spiritual discipline. And I want to read to you what he said uh, about the very topic we're talking about. He said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. But God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God's love is still working. Now, I want you to look at that for a moment, and I want you to think about it. Circumstances appear to wreck our lives. They appear to wreck God's plans. But God is not helpless among the ruins and the ashes. God is able to take that which is sifted. God is able to take our broken lives, and they're not lost, they're not useless. God is still working. God's love still has the last word. That's a powerful promise, isn't it? I mean, how comforting is it for you when you're going through a time of brokenness to remember that Jesus is praying for you by name? I mean, did you read that in the scripture in verse 31? Simon, Simon, this is This is Peter's other name, Simon. He calls him by name, and he says, I I have prayed for you that your own faith would not fail. I mean, how wonderful and how comforting is it to you to know that no matter what you're going through this morning, Jesus is praying for you. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. But it's not just that he will pray for us. Before the storm comes, before the violent shaking comes, Jesus has already prayed for us. Before we get to the tragedy, before we get to the pain, Jesus has already prayed up and he's already praying for us. So no matter what, your brokenness this morning, Jesus has prayed for you. No matter what you fear and what your life is facing, Jesus has prayed for you. That's the promise of Scripture that as broken disciples, Jesus never, ever lets us out of his sight or out of his care. Now, there's another piece of this that I want us to get, and it's subtle in this text, and you have to draw it out, but it's there. Brokenness is a community event. 
Healing is a community event. Following Jesus is a community process. Discipleship does not happen by ourselves. We do not learn to follow Jesus in isolation because our brokenness did not happen in isolation and the healing that can come can only happen in the community of faith. We cannot do it alone. And I want to show you what this scripture reveals for us. In verse 31, when Jesus said, Satan has demanded to sift all of you, the pronoun is plural. He's talking about all of the disciples. But in verse 32, the pronoun is singular. But I have prayed for you, singular, Simon, that your own faith, singular, may not fail, and that you, singular, Simon, when once you have turned, you will strengthen your brothers. Do you see? The brokenness happens to all of us, but Simon is charged with the responsibility of strengthening those who are struggling just as he has been strengthened. Someone described it to me with the image of mountain climbing. Uh, Mountain climbing teams have a system. If you're holding onto the rope, that means that someone is above you. Someone who's already checked out the solid rocks, the solid footing, the ledge that is dependable. And that person is holding the rope. So you have strength that you're not alone in climbing the mountain. But you also have a responsibility to not only look up, but to look down the mountain because you're holding the rope for someone who's behind you. You're finding the footing. You're finding the clear and the strong places for the one who comes after you. And it's a process, and it's a team experience. It's not a solo event. And so someone's going before Simon Peter. Jesus has warned him, tough times are coming. But someone's coming after Peter. Peter, Simon Peter, once you have been strengthened, turn around and stabilize those lives who are coming after you. We need each other. The process of discipleship is never done in isolation. Have I said that often enough? The process of discipleship is a group event. There was a a sociologist, an urban sociologist by the name of uh, Ray Oldenburg. Oldenburg. Uh, He's written a lot of uh, books on urban sociology. And he wrote a really famous book entitled Celebrating the Third Place. In Celebrating the Third Place, he says that our culture has two places that everybody knows about. The first place is the home. The second place is work. We spend a lot of time at home. We spend a lot of time at work. But he says, socially, we need a third place, a place to unwind, a place to be honest, a place to be real, a place to be confessional, a place to get encouragement, a place to tell stories and to hear stories, a place to be socialized, to be incorporated into the community. Now, unfortunately, he's an urban sociologist, and he said, you know, those places are coffee shops, they're bowling alleys, they're, uh, they're uh, book clubs, they're all kinds of places. And, of course, that's the, that's the magic that Starbucks figured out. That's the magic of coffee shops today. I heard a, a missiologist named Leonard Sweet this spring say that every Starbucks is an indictment of the New Testament church. 
Every coffee shop is an indictment of the New Testament church because the listening and the caring and the authentic relationship building that ought to be happening in church is happening there in those places. And he went on to say, the church thought we were in the doctrine business. The church thought we were in the belief business. The church thought we were in the religion business. But he said, actually, if you read the New Testament carefully, we're in the relationship business. We're in the relationship business. Relationship with others and relationship with God. Think about the scripture I read to you. The relationship struggle, as the disciples argue, who's the greatest? The relationship struggle as as Simon Peter comes face to face with his own denial of Jesus. A relationship struggle that breaks him. We need each other. We're in the relationship business. Discipling doesn't happen solo. There's one more thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice how Jesus is future focused in this scripture. I want you to notice how Jesus could have been focused on the past and talked about the good old, day, good old days when he was popular, the first few years of his ministry, but he didn't. He could have focused on the present and said to the disciples, don't you care about me and all the suffering I'm going to go through and all the, the misunderstanding and, and all the ways I'm being treated right now? He could have focused on the past or on the present, but Jesus focuses on the future. He disciples Peter, he disciples Simon Peter by looking to the future and warning him and preparing him about the violent sifting and about the brokenness that will come. Now, I want to parenthetically pause right here and say, if you are currently discipling a new believer, or if you are a new believer and you're currently being discipled, a part of that curriculum should be a preparation for future times of brokenness and pain because they will come. That's a part of discipling. So Jesus is preparing and discipling Simon Peter by telling him the truth about the brokenness and the sifting that will come. Ran across this statement. Want to see what you think about it. Every church needs to think about the next generation. You buy that? Talk to me. Do you buy that? You are there. I I see you now. Hear you. Every church, because what happens if the church stops to think about the next stops thinking about the next generation? Church begins to die. Is our church thinking about the next generation, about discipling the next generation with love and grow and serve? I hope that's what we're doing with our strong missions and evangelism emphasis. I hope that's what we're doing with an acknowledgement of different worship tastes and worship styles to reach more people and to reach people across generations. I hope that's what we're doing uh, by our intentionality with preschoolers and children and youth to say that an investment of, of budget money and time and human resources, this is important to the, our future because every church needs to think about the next generation. It's just a, who we are. It's a part of what we're called to do. Uh, 
I want to share with you a little autobiography. Over the years, I've shared little snippets of this, and it will be repeat for some of you. But when I was growing up in the little country church in North Missouri, Maple Grove Baptist Church, a church that ran about 50 in total attendance, 55-0 in Sunday school and worship. That was on a good Sunday uh, when the cows didn't get out and everybody could show up for church. Uh, a young pastor and his wife came to serve our church, Fred and Shirley Harner. They came from Illinois. They were called to be missionaries in Brazil, but first of all, they had to do college and seminary and some pastoring experience. So they lived in, in Liberty. Uh, they went to college during the day, later seminary. At night, he worked at an auto assembly plant, and weekends, they pastored our church. I'm not sure when he slept, but that's the schedule they kept. They had plans to just pastor little old Maple Grove for a couple of years and then go on to a larger congregation and get their field experience that they needed to go overseas. But something happened. God began to work in my life as a 14-year-old. God began to stir and there was transformation happening in me spiritually. And God started calling me to ministry. When I was 15, I made a commitment to that vocational call to ministry. And Fred intentionally got off the track to go to Brazil as quickly as he could to stay an extra year at that tiny little church. And he stayed for the express purpose of discipling me and preparing me and training me. You know why he did that? Because every church needs to think about the next generation every church. And Jesus was preparing Peter for his brokenness, thinking ahead to the next generation of believers, always preparing. I love the story about these two men who met every week for discipling. One was the mentor, one was the new believer. And uh, every week they'd meet for Bible study, prayer, discussion. And the discipler and the new believer uh, would visit. One day, the discipler, the mature Christian, said to the uh, new Christian, uh, what kind of problems and failures did you experience this week? And the new believer thought, well, you're not supposed to admit to failure if you're a Christian. You're not supposed to say you've messed up if you're a follower of Jesus. So this new believer said, I didn't have any problems this week. I didn't have any failures this week. And you know what his discipler said to him? He said, okay, then let me tell you about mine. And he spent the entire hour talking about his own brokenness, his own failure, and his own pain, and his own mistakes. It's in our brokenness, it's in the sifting, that discipleship happens. We don't wait till we get perfect. We start following Jesus where we are. Let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. Let's pray together.